Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 10. The way in. It doesn't take me long to find Nack and Mal. The trail of blood leads me backstage, through a flap leading outside and across the muddy lot, to Mal's Vardo. The night is dead cold and dark. The lights of the surrounding apartments and townhouses glimmer through the rain. The audience streams out of the tent. I have no idea what became of the gunslingers. The door to Mal's Vardo hangs open, and from inside, mixed with Knack trying to calm her down, comes a sound like a bear growling in pain, and fear, and anger. Get your damn hands off me, she cries. Leave me be! Inside, Knack, covered in blood, tries frantically to hold Mal down and inspect the wound at the same time. Mal thrashes about on the bed. I rush over and pin her arms. She's strong for someone who's just been gut shot. I take it for a good sign, but when Nack finally opens her shirt, his face goes pale. I... I need to go get my doctoring bag, he stammers. Go then. I'll make sure she doesn't die before you get back. He looks at me as though just realizing I'm there. Then he gives me a nod and hustles off. The fight seems to have gone out of Mal. She twists on top of her sheets. She doesn't seem all there. Pain can do that. It can lift you right out of your boots, right out of your body, so you hardly feel nothing. I've been there, and looking back on it, it's a kind of gift. How your body does that. Stops you from feeling. Her eyes slide closed, and I slap her cheek to rouse her. Can't have her drift too far off. She locks me with a death stare, her teeth black and gold, bared like a wild animal. I knew you'd betray me, she snarls. I knew it from first I laid eyes on you. But she's not looking at me anymore. She's staring past me at someone else. Maybe someone from a memory. And then she looks away, sucking at her bottom lip as the pain surges back. She goes quiet again, and I slump back in my chair to catch my breath. It's the first time I've been inside her Vardo. I've always just knocked and she's come out. It's dirty and unkempt. 
The floor is littered with dirt and papers and the broken glass of liquor bottles. Half-cooked and uneaten food stands rotting on the iron stovetop. The bed is stained and sour-smelling. It'll be hard healing in a room like this. If this were the Southland, I'd open the windows and let the hot air blow through the room. Not much the sun can't make clean. But on a night like this, she'd catch a chill and die of fever before the bullet had time to take her. Nack stumbles through the doorway, the doctoring bag in his hand. He pulls up beside the bed, drops the bag on the floor, and blows into his chapped and frozen hands. Then from the bag, he reveals a bottle of clear alcohol. He unstoppers it, and I lift Mal's head so she can drink. He splashes it into her mouth. It runs over her chin and down the front of her shirt, but I can see her swallowing. For the pain, he says, more to himself than me. He takes a swig himself and then splashes a bit more over the wound. Mal winces, but the alcohol seems to have numbed her a bit already. Nack works for over an hour on Mal. Most of that time is spent digging around in her belly as gently as he can muster, looking for the bullet. He finds it in the end, and I hold out a saucer for him to put it in. He's pretty much spent by then, exhausted, white as a ghost, and I tell him to rest, that I can take it from there. You sure? He says, hopefully. I'm sure. He collapses onto a chair at the foot of the bed and watches silently as I go to work sewing close the wound. First, I make sure she's not bleeding inside. And by some miracle, she ain't. Honestly, I don't know what I would have done if it had been the case. But the wound in her belly is another matter. I sew that up quickly with neat, even stitches. I splash more of the alcohol over the wound, clearing away the blood, and now she doesn't even react. She's not asleep, but she's not awake either, and I have no idea if she's going to make it or not. We'll just have to wait and see. And to my surprise, it doesn't bother me in the least, one way or another. And I don't know if it's just because I've had all the love burned out of me, or if I just don't feel for Mal the way I did for Cass or Lobo or Heartright. And a part of me does feel strange about that. But a larger part of me is too tired to care. Let's get some fresh air, Nack says. We sit on the steps of Mal's Vardo. He has that bottle of clear alcohol in his hands, weighing it like he's trying to decide if there's enough left to get us both drunk. He lifts it to his lips and takes a pull. He wipes his mouth and hands it to me, but I just hold it, too tired to drink. It stopped raining, but the fog makes everything cold and wet. I don't know if she's going to make it, he says. And then, just like that, I think maybe I need a drink after all and take a deep pull from the bottle. It burns going down and sits in my stomach like fire. I let my eyes close, feeling the warmth of the alcohol spread through my body. When I open my eyes, I catch Nack staring at me. He looks away quickly, at nothing off in the distance, but his eyes flick back to me to check if I've noticed or not. Somewhere, a door opens and closes, and through the dark comes the sound of the muck sucking at the soles of someone's boots as they approach. Kef emerges through the mist with a pot cradled in his big arms. 
He puts it down on the bottom step and cranes his neck at the door. How's she doing? He says. She's sleeping, Nack says. Kef nods. I brought y'all some grub. Figured you'd need it after the night you've had. Nack lifts the lid and steam rises in a big white cloud. The air fills with the smell of baked chicken. And looking in, I spy cooked carrots and potatoes and half a loaf of crusty bread. Shame about the show, Kef says, smiling wanly before saying goodnight and tromping off. We eat with our hands, covered in blood and dirt, and it doesn't seem to matter at all. Thanks, Nack says, his mouth full. For what? For back there. I don't know if I'd have been able to deal with it on my own. You'd have been fine. He throws a picked clean bone into the mud and wipes his hands on his pants. We've hardly eaten at all, but all of a sudden my stomach is tight as a knot, and I wonder if he's feeling the same. Did I ever tell you that it was my mom and dad who started the Irregulars? You might have. <laughs> they loved it. Growing up with it, I loved it too. They died. Killed when I was 15. And then it was up to me to keep it going. When it all happened, I didn't think I could do it. But the others rallied around me, especially Mal. She'd only been with us for a few weeks by that point. She had the least to lose by the Irregulars disbanding. But she helped anyway. Somehow I have a hard time picturing her as the nurturing type. He laughs darkly. No, she was never that. But she's gotten worse somehow. Then again, the only reason she's laid up like this is because she'd rather take a bullet than send the troop down the river. So maybe I'm doing her an unkindness. When I look up at him, he's staring at me again. What? He leans in close to me, and when I don't move away, he kisses me. I'm too shocked to kiss him back. All I can think is how this is my first kiss, my first proper one, and how it's all somehow fitting that it happens when I'm covered in grime and blood. When he pulls away, I touch my fingers to my lips, almost to check to make sure they're really mine. And they are. And now I'm cursing myself for not kissing him back when I had the chance. Sorry, he says. It's fine, I hear myself saying, when what I want to say is how I want him to kiss me again, that he just took me by surprise is all. He stands and stretches his back. You turning in? No, he says. I figure I'll keep watch, just in case she wakes. I might stay up too then. You don't have to. I don't figure I'm getting a lot of sleep anyway. From inside the Vardo comes the sound of Mal moaning. Nack peeks in, but then the moaning stops and he shuts the door against the cold. Well, if you really don't think you'll get any sleep anyway, I wouldn't mind the company. It's too cold to stay out there on the step, and inside is so rank it would be hard to stay the night in there. So together we spend the night cleaning Mal's Vardo. It'll have to get done anyway. No one could do any amount of healing and squalor like that. 
And Mal is so out of it, she hardly stirs. Even when we're busily knocking around her heavy cast iron pans. We sweep the litter out the door, scrub the floors and walls, clean the stove, and even dare to change her sheets and blankets, rolling Mal from one side of the bed to the other. And the fact that she doesn't wake or protest at all makes me think for a moment that she might be dead. But when I hold a mirror up to her lips, the glass fogs, so she's still breathing. In the end, I figure it doesn't matter, missing my chance to kiss Neck back. That's not my life anyway. And in who knows how long after I'm out of Neck's life, he'll meet some other prettier, nicer girl who will know what to do when she's kissed and both of their lives will be better for me messing up my chance. So some good might come of it after all. When I wake the next day, I don't know where I am. The light shines through the window, and that way the sun seems to shine brightest after a storm. I find myself sitting stiffly in a wooden chair at the foot of Mal's bed. After last night, the place is spick and span, but that sour smell still lingers. In the bed, Mal's breathing is shallow but steady, and the fact that she's made it through the night makes me think... She might just make it to the end. Nack's gone, but on the chair beside me stands a mug of coffee still steaming. There's a note beneath it that reads, thank you for the company. I take the coffee and step outside. The morning is bright, but icy cold. Kef and Rado and a few other irregulars have gathered around the entrance to the big top. Zephyr sees me and motions for me to come over. I saddle up next to them, and they make room for me to see inside. The bleachers have been pushed back against the sides of the tent. Brooms and dustpans have been abandoned beside them, as though those cleaning had to leave in a hurry. In the center of the ring, Nack is talking with a couple of gunslingers. Their backs turn to us. It's impossible to hear what they're saying, but it all seems fairly civil, especially after the gunplay of the night before. Then one of the gunslingers turns a fraction toward the entrance, enough for me to make out his profile. It's Nico. He scans the equipment littered around the big top, his arms crossed, listening as his partner, the same one who I saw on the day they killed Cass and Lobo, talks to Knack. My blood freezes in my veins, and I might have just stood out there in the open if at that moment, Kef doesn't grab me and pull me back outside. My mind races with what to do. This might be my best chance to confront him, to take my revenge and make it last long enough so that he knows it was me and why I did it. Eos squeaks, they're coming out. And maybe just because everyone else acts like they weren't hanging around the entrance trying to sneak a peek, I act that way too, ducking behind Kef as Nico and his partner emerge and march away across the field. I just watch him go peering around Kef's wide frame, and I wonder if I'm just too chicken shit to do anything about it. A moment later, Nack comes out, and the irregulars converge on him. What was that about? asks Rado. Nack scratches at the stubble on his chin, looking off at the street down which Nico and his partner disappeared. They were apologizing. Bullshit, Eos scoffs. They were following up to see if there really was a bullet catcher here. They want to hire us, Nack says, 
eyeing me. They want us to put on a show at the Capitol building for the anniversary of the gunslingers winning the war. Our usual routines, but also a pantomime, a couple acts. What did you say? I ask. Nothing yet. They're sending a runner to get our answer tomorrow morning. What does it pay? Asks Zephyr. Enough to get us back south and then some, Nax says. Everyone else goes off to busy themselves with this or that, so that it's just Nack and me left. What do you think we should do? He asks. All I know is that if you take the job, it would give me a hell of a chance to kill a person that needs killing. So I ain't exactly objective on the matter. He takes a deep breath and lets it out. I'm not the type of person who goes in for revenge. Always seem to cause more problems than it's solved. Maybe that's only because you ain't ever had someone worth taking revenge on. No, that's not it. And I know he's thinking of his parents. All these years since he was 15, dead and buried. Then maybe you've just never had the opportunity. He looks up at the sky, at the sun lifting higher over the city and says, I got things needing attending to. I'll let you know the same as everyone when I've made my decision. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I go for a run to clear my head. I start off on my normal route down the main thoroughfare, but the morning has already grown late and the street is packed with people, so I turn down a side alley. And then I'm just running, not thinking about where I'm going, not giving a damn if someone sees me or not. I pass by the workshops, the glass blowers rolling out the hot orange bowls along the pavement. Then the bars and cafes, their tables and chairs spilled out into the street, causing havoc for the passing horses, pulling carts of gourds and hay, and one man with his cart loaded up high with furniture and time-worn oil paintings and brass candlesticks, and any other bits of randomness he's picked up along the way. I pass the people selling all manner of things out of trunks opened up along the sidewalk. Timepieces, and embroidered handkerchiefs, and tin toy soldiers. And slowly, as I make my way from street to street, deeper into the city and farther away from the rookery than ever before, the buildings grow taller and taller. The worn brick lanes of the rookery turn to cobblestone. Here, the men walk with canes and dress in waistcoats and dark, heavy, finely knit wool. Polished, uncreased boots with new soles. Gold chains of pocket watches droop from vest pockets. And the ladies wear dresses as if they were headed out dancing in perfume and feathers in their hair. I run until I can't run anymore, until the sky is dark and the streetlights come to life. The large apartments and storefronts give way to grass, green and manicured, even in this dead cold winter. The colonnaded buildings stand like monuments along the avenue, 
and are made entirely of huge white stone that glitters in the dusk light. With my last few lungfuls of air, I mount the wide steps leading up to the most majestic of the buildings along the avenue, a white, expansive edifice topped with a massive glass dome. At the top of the steps, I come to a tall iron gate, painted black, and I stop and lean against it to catch my breath. Move along, miss, comes a gruff voice from the other side of the gate. And when I look up, there's a gunslinger in full military regalia staring me down with his hand on the butt of his shooter, like I just called him out in front of everyone at the bar. And that's when I realize what the building beyond the gate is. The huge black banners hanging from the eaves between the columns, the squads of people running drills in the yard, the lines of bullet-riddled dummies. This is the Gunslinger Capitol building. And this kid overzealously guarding the gate is one of the cadets. Did you hear me, or are you... The cadet makes a gagging sound like he bit his tongue, and when I look back at him, he's staring at my hand, at the tattoo that once made me a gunslinger, the one that, for all he knows, still claims me as one of his own. I'm... I'm sorry, miss, he stammers, giving me a quick salute. I didn't realize. And then he retreats back into his guard hut. Somewhere beyond this gate is Nico. This is where I was trying to get to, to save him. And this is where I'll have to come if I want to kill him. And suddenly, there's no question in my mind whether Nack should accept the job or not. He has to. I rub the tattoo on the back of my hand. Turns out, I have the perfect way to get to Nico once we're inside. When I get back to camp, a bonfire is burning. Kef tells me that Nack is in Mal's Vardo. He's sitting by Mal's bed. He stands when he sees me, his face grim, and my first thought is that she's dead. But then she stirs, and I know it's not that. Where have you been? He asks. Thinking. So have I. He settles back in the chair like he's so much older than he is. He rubs his eyes with the palms of his hands and says, I'm not taking the job. It's too dangerous. And my mind is already made up. If he won't help me, I'll just have to do it myself. I stand up to leave. Don't, Nack says. Talk to me. There's nothing to talk about. I'll find another way. I'm already out the door when another voice stops me in my tracks. What's all this racket? Mal says weakly, and when I turn, I watch as Nack drops to his knees at the side of the bed and takes the old woman's hand in his own, cradling it. And that's when I get it. She's more than just another member of his troop. She's the closest thing he's got to a mother. And maybe she didn't take that bullet for the troop. Maybe she only took it for him. I wasn't sure if you were going to make it. He says, I'm too old to die, she says. I close the door to keep out the wind and come back to the bed. Mal staring at Nack like she's disgusted to be fussed over. But when she notices I'm there, she turns her attention to me. What you two arguing about? She croaks, trying to sit up. 
You need your rest, says Nack. Stop your fretting and help me up. We prop the pillows beneath her. Now, she says, what were you two arguing about? It's nothing, he says. We got an invite to perform at the Gunslinger Capitol building. An apology for putting a bullet in you. Mal turns to Nack and fixes him with a stare. And, she says, he doesn't answer. He sits heavily back down in his chair. He's turning it down, I say. And Mal just closes her eyes and shakes her head and says to Nack, No, you're taking that job and this youngin' and I are going to kill ourselves a whole heap of gunslingers. And just like that, it's decided. Mal shoes us out of her Vardo, saying how she's going to need plenty of rest if she's going to be healthy enough for the big event. She seems almost giddy at the prospect. Nack closes the door behind us, and we stand out in the light of the bonfire. The way he's standing there with his arms crossed, digging the heel of his boot into the muck, I know he's got a whole heap of things he wants to tell me. It'll be okay, I tell him. He almost laughs. He looks over his shoulder at the few irregulars gathered around the fire. No, he says. We both know it won't. It's past midnight when the light in Mal's Vardo goes on. I trail muddy footprints up the steps and just when I'm about to knock, I hear her voice from within croak, Come in already! Mal is sitting up in bed. All around on the floor, the leaves of newspapers have been scattered around. Dried boot prints trail back and forth between the door and the bed. And the plate of half-eaten food sits on the bedside table, where a fly balances on the end of a chicken bone. And already she's making her home hers again. Dank and squalid and mean. Sit here, she says almost sweetly, gesturing to the chair beside the bed. I cross the floor and sit. She looks at me for a time before saying, I told you that if you let yourself feel for Knack, it would only hurt you both. I don't feel anything for him. Don't you dare lie to me. I swallow. I don't anymore. How can I be so afraid of this decrepit old woman laid up in bed with a gut wound? But when I try to meet her gaze, I'm reminded that she's not one to cross, that she demands obedience and loyalty. And I don't blame Knack for not being able to say no to her. Good, she says. He is serving his purpose. What do you mean? What I mean is that because of him, we are being delivered to the gunslinger's front door. You shouldn't be fretting over his feelings. You should be thinking about how you are going to make his sacrifice count for something. He's a lamb. Then what does that make me? She smiles and says, You, Emma, are a wolf. Later that night, Alone in my Vardo, I turn Mal's words over in my mind. And though she told me not to think of Knack, I can't help it. 
So even though I've already taken off my boots and scraped the mud from the soles, I pull them back on, march over to Nax Vardo, and knock on the door. When he opens the door, his eyes are red and tired looking. His shoulders are slumped forward, and in his hand he's holding a bottle. When he sees me, he doesn't say anything, but when he retreats back inside, he leaves the door open. I could stay or go, and I don't know which one I'm aiming to do until I find myself going in and closing the door behind me. Cold night, I say. It's warmer by the stove. I'm sorry about today. You got what you wanted. I stand there by the stove until I can't take it anymore. At the door, I turn and say, Do you hate me? He looks up at me. His eyes are watery, and he hasn't shaved in at least two days. No. I don't hate you. You kissed me just the other night. It feels like a long time ago already. That I've been meaning to apologize for. I don't know what came over me. I didn't mind so much. I thought... I mean, you didn't kiss me back. I shrug. Might be that you took me by surprise. He looks up at me, his jaw hanging a bit open. Is that a fact? Could be. He stands and comes over to me. I'm between him and the door, and he's so close I can smell the sweat on his clothes and the alcohol. Promise me my people won't get hurt, he says to me. If I could promise it and mean it, I would. And the words are hardly out of my mouth before he's kissing me. And I think maybe he misheard me, and I'm just as surprised as the first go-around, but at least this time I managed to kiss him back. And then he's running his fingers through my hair that I still haven't washed from the day's run, but he doesn't seem to mind. And he traces my cheek with his hand, and his mouth is so close to mine that when he says... We'll keep them safe together. If we're going to do this thing, we're going to do it right. And then you'll be done with it, and we can all get on with our lives. That it almost feels like I'm saying it. And I tell him yes, right into his mouth, so that I imagine the word traveling down his throat and warming his stomach. Yes. A warm little word. And then we're kissing again, and the only thing more surprising is that something so good can happen on a night like this. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona. <laughs>